Hello and welcome to the first episode of Clearcut with Upward. Today we have Mr. J. Sai Deepak, arguing counsel at the Supreme Court of India and the Delhi High Court, and someone who holds the rare distinction of being the advocate for no less than Sri Padmanabha Swami, uh, Lord Ayappa, and Lord Jagannath. Today we'll be speaking about the flavor of the season, elections, and democracy in general, but not as they do in newsrooms. Uh, with all the madness surrounding it, but as common concerned citizens who want to bring back some semblance of sanity into the public discourse and to understand what really ails democracy in India. Jay Sai Deepak, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so let's get to the meat of the topic first, right away. What are the three, four key issues that you think are missing from the political discourse of this country? Uh, but that are absolutely critical for the long-term survival of the civilization. Uh, environment, specifically the water crisis, uh, education, uh, population explosion, which I think is going unchecked. We seem to be laboring under the belief that uh, demographics, especially, uh, is always going to be a boon as far as the current day market economics is concerned, I think that's too myopic uh, position for us to take. Innovation. These, I think, are the important topics which find absolutely no mention anywhere whatsoever in any discourse. And uh, forget even sane discourse, electoral discourse does not even attempt to touch any of these topics with a barge pole. So I think that's, that's seriously problematic. And that shows that as a democracy, we have a long way to go in terms of the topics that we touch upon, in terms of the topics that stir us when we decide to press the button on the day of elections. So when you talk about uh, environment, what do you think is the major obstacle to bringing it back to uh, public consciousness? I think that we need to reorient our compass when it comes to what are our definitions of development. Uh, the problem with this particular proposition or this particular statement is anybody who makes the statement runs the risk of being seen as a tree hugger and someone who is anti-development. Uh, but if one were to go by the Indic notions of what is development and what is respect for nature, and what is the concept of sustainable development, I think at this point of time we are uh, importing almost every conception of development which is alien to this land. And a country which was or a land that was known for uh, rivers, forests, jungles, dense jungles, stands to lose it all uh, in the foreseeable future. And I think we got a fairly horrendous trailer of it in the Kerala floods last year. Right. So, um, so I remember having this conversation with you earlier as well, uh, when we were talking about Indic Sanjeevani in particular. And uh, the fact that the jurisprudence in India, right, which is basically, I mean, to my uh, mind, is imported from the West largely. Uh, and the beginning of all this... Um, uh, disrespect for the environment, so to speak. Does it really lie at, in the theory of law itself that it, it doesn't have enough teeth to take on these, uh, you know, very serious issues? Law, I think, comes at a much later point of time. The first thing that moves law is thought, which is reflected in policy. Right. Industrial policy, what is your development policy, your innovation policy, what's your environment policy? Do they operate in silos? Is there a handshake between these policies? This is effectively the question. 
What has happened over the years, thanks to a lot of international conventions, is that the word sustainable development has become a buzzword without understanding what does it necessarily translate to. It's, it, it has become one of those buzzwords like accountability and transparency without people really paying attention to its operational applications. Sustainable development to a very large extent in international conventions has become a discussion about take from nature and share the benefit with communities which have protected that nature. As opposed to asking oneself whether some things in nature are even meant to be interfered with at all in the first place by human beings because it is not just about human beings and their consumption but other life systems which are dependent on it. That fragile balance is something which I think is being affected uh, ironically by the very concept of sustainable development because sustainable development has become more of an exit, uh, let's say a backdoor option for corporations to enter the realm of environment and take what they want in the hope that as long as they keep those communities happy which have been responsible for cult cultivating that particular resource they've done their duty i think that's where the problem lies i think slowly we need to start moving towards a particular idea where some things are completely off bounds they cannot be interfered with for any reasons whatsoever unless and until situation has reached a point that you have to necessarily interfere with it. It is effectively the option of last resort. That I think is the jurisprudence that we must move towards. But when, when we talk about, um, you know, you, you mentioned about bringing back the Indic, uh, uh, Indic sense into, the, uh, into this whole problem. Right. Now, if, but if we look at countries uh, which do not belong to the Indic civilization, let's say any country in the West, in Europe, um, I think it is fair to say that they still, they also face the same problems, right? As far as the environment is concerned, it's of course that they're, they're much cleaner and because they have more resources and they're richer countries, but essentially they also face the same problems. So in, I mean, I think that there is something to do, I mean, it has something to do with uh, the theory of law itself, which does not grant the environment a place in, uh, you know, in place in its imagination. Uh, so policy also comes from that only right. and uh, it could be argued that it can be traced back to the industrial revolution mm. when law became a tool of uh, you know increasing privatization of resources and moving away from the notion of commons. Right. Uh, do you think that is a valid point? The thing is, uh, here's how I look at it. Uh, I don't think United States as a country is the perfect role model from an environmental compliance standpoint. I think increasingly people should start looking to countries like Germany, which have done a much better job of protecting their forest cover, of protecting their, uh, their let's say, flora and fauna. Now, they may not subscribe consciously to the concept of Indic jurisprudence when it comes to environment, but since Indic jurisprudence is fundamentally universalist in nature, and it only looks at respect for nature for the sake of it, and in your own interest for the to protect the interest of the future generations as long as anybody subscribes to that particular worldview as far as environment is concerned whether or not he understands it or realizes it he is effectively subscribing to an indic jurisprudence as far as this is concerned now i am not saying that we must be necessarily stuck to this particular label and not get out of it if there are better ideas but since there is a fundamental respect for nature which, is, which forms the bedrock of this entire civilization, any culture that respects nature in practice and in word, in letter and in spirit, I think is effectively subscribing to the Indic worldview for environmental jurisprudence. 
Now the thing is, as far as India is concerned, uh, perhaps 30 to 40 years of paralyzed development or stagnated development has resulted in a certain hunger for development which comes at the expense of resources, which comes at the expense of communities, which are responsible for maintaining the fragile balance between man and nature. Now, in that process, what happens is all these concerns, I think, effectively take the back seat. And then we will sit and repent like China, which I think is what is doing at this point of time, because most of its cities have become unlivable, especially the cities that it wishes to showcase to the rest of the world. So, uh, I think our own uh, polity and society at this point of time, notwithstanding our claims of being inheritors of a great civilization, is so beyond this realm of mature thought on this particular front that it does not figure in our list of priorities at all, unless and until it affects us on a practical basis, on a daily basis when there is a water crisis. And that's when we realize that something has happened or there is a flood, a flash flood, a landslide, so to speak. Then we suddenly realize that there is something problematic. Or if a man-eater walks into a place which is heavily inhabited, that's when we realize that there's a problem. Even then, we try and address it using band-aids. So a simple example would be that uh, Professor Madhav Gadgil's report on the Western Ghats should have been the first thing that the authorities that be, the powers that be both at the central level and the state level must have gone back to when the Kerala floods happened. There is no discussion of the document at all at any place. So I don't know what is going on because it appears as if we thought or we, we continue to think that this was an aberration and it may not repeat itself when perhaps this was nature's way of warning you that there is more in store if you do not wake up. So before we get into uh, you know the structural reforms that we could bring about in India's democracy, <clears throat> let's answer a very fundamental question that a lot of people seem to raise because the underlying theme of this discussion is civilization. So some people question the very concept of civilization and they say that we are living in a global village or at least are moving towards a point where right. the world will be a global village. Right. So if a global village is really inevitable, then why bother about civilization or Indic thought at all? I think uh, the Indic civilization can fairly lay claim to being the pioneer when it comes to a universalist approach. So I don't think the concept of a global village is alien to us nor are we too parochial to reject that particular notion altogether. We welcome it. I think that has been our position always. But as I've said elsewhere before, this is an evolutionary process. You move there inch by inch. You don't take leaping strides because in the process, when you try to hasten this particular process and this evolution, you end up creating effectively genocides without even realizing that you're responsible for it. And uh, that, I think, is at the heart of the problem. People who think that anybody who is attached to the concept of a nation state or political borders is necessarily a conservative idiot or a, or a country brute who doesn't understand the concept of a global village, I think that is elitism at play. Hmm. And that is what is plaguing the discourse at this point of time. They don't realize that every idea has its time. This idea, its time hasn't come yet because there are several countries and several societies that are that are way behind when it comes to the learning curve, in the evolutionary curve. And this is not meant to be a racist statement. Poverty holds you back from thinking about those thoughts which take you forward as a race, as a, as a species. And when so, so many millions of people and billions of people are still below the poverty line, 
to argue for a global village is to be extremely irresponsible because a global village effectively presents an amorphous picture in terms of administration, in terms of governance, who takes responsibility for law and order, for management of resources, resolution of disputes. These are questions. What happens to rule of law? So I don't think there is a problem with that concept. I still think we, we have to be a bit more cautious in how quickly do we move towards that particular stage. It is my opinion that as long as the uh, South Asian or Southeast Asian, uh, let's say, subcontinent continues to be behind when it comes to material development or let's say HDI, human development indices, there is no question of a global village. And as long as this particular, there is a reason why this particular landmass effectively has become the home for such a huge population because of its conducive nature, resources, its fundamentally agrarian outlook, the agrarian nature of the civilizations which have actually been born here. If this particular landmass and the people here are not ready for it, the rest of the world is not ready for it. Right. That is my position. Right. So, in fact, uh, I was recently reading something from uh, Nasim Nicholas Talib, right. in which he talks about um, how an old idea is evolutionarily superior to a new idea because it has survived the test of time. Right. While this is not applicable to every particular old idea, right. but generally speaking, he recommends that you are, I mean, one should always be suspicious right. of the new idea and uh, respectful of the old idea just by virtue of it having survived so long. Right. And then he gets into some mathematics and stuff like that. So it's interesting because uh, the hoary past that we have inherited right. has some wonderful ideas about nature, about how we should uh, treat it, how we should blend with it. And uh, in my opinion, I think that uh, getting back that indigness into, right. uh, into the worldview of even those who do not belong to the civilization is sort of critical to how we'll take this forward. Right? Do you think uh, Taleb has ever had an opportunity to apply this proposition to the concept of caste? Because if according to him, something that has survived all these decades or centuries must necessarily be respected because it has withstood the test of time. I wonder what his opinions would be with respect to caste. So I, I don't know if he's actually had the opportunity or the inclination to have gone through the material on caste. But uh, if I take the liberty of, <coughs> of speaking on his behalf, then I do think that caste as an institution did survive very long because it had certain very... Um, inherent strengths which uh, which made the society prosperous. We should not forget that India was uh, the most prosperous society on earth because largely it was a caste-based society and it had, it had those, um, what do you call it, the, the, the networks within the castes were so strong and so robust that uh, Talib actually has a word for it, it is anti-fragile. So the more diverse a network is, the lesser its chances of breaking down under stress. So you see. What stops anyone from hurling the accusation of you being a casteist, especially a upper caste male, Savarna stereotype? Nothing, caste. Uh, nothing stops anyone. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, right. I, I, I do get where you're coming from. Uh, but you see, I mean. It's a structure that, let's say, I mean, specifically speaking, your community or our, my community has benefited from is the allegation. Right. So therefore, we are interested parties in defending that particular structure. Of course. So what would the argument be? 
no the argument really is to uh, is to question is to make counter questions right uh, whenever there is a claim that there was atrocities other than anecdotal evidence and i am not denying that there were atrocities but other than anecdotal evidences there is nothing that is produced which conclusively proves that there was a system of exploitation caste essentially in my view was a, an institution for the welfare of uh, society as opposed to exploiting one caste one caste exploiting another right so there were certain rules which may not be applicable now and some of which might again come back because of the you know because of the cyclical nature of how societies evolve and you know rise and fall so we don't really know where we are in terms of that cycle right. but uh, but there is always a good and bad and i don't see why we should single out certain instances and use them as some sort of conclusive evidence to prove that prove a, a notion that we already have which is politically expedient as well it's interesting that you say this because the one thing that i've always been amazed is uh, when you look at the example of tamil nadu the so called dravidian revolution the justice party revolution the self respect movement uh, had its birth around the same time as the october revolution in russia and their entire thing was about destroying this creature called caste and today i think tamil nadu happens to stand out as one of the one of those states where caste plays such a pernicious and pervasive role in every aspect of public life from electoral politics to acting to opportunities to perhaps uh, your ability to get a fair opportunity in a forum that you think would be otherwise neutral without naming the forum uh, that one wonders what exactly went wrong did they fail to understand this concept of caste or did they fail to understand how to tackle the problem of casteism hmm. that is something that i have not been able to understand myself because according to me if there is a structure which allows for porous movement up and down and that structure allows you to build networks in your professions because from what i understand caste as a structure kicked in especially in the grahasthashram when you have chosen your profession so therefore it is a vocational identification or a vocational structure if that be the case and if that had been not as rigid as it has turned out to be because i understand that there is perhaps not enough conclusive evidence but when you go to villages and other places it is difficult to not notice that there is a certain element which has uh, a certain sense of elitism and which comes with the assumption that some people are meant to be treated this way that is difficult to escape true not just in rural places you see this even in urban spaces delhi is a prime example i have seen casteism in the manner in which the police deals with people assume for a moment and it has happened with me of course this is another cliched way of explaining a certain situation but one of my house helps uh, his brother eloped with a lady from a brahmin household his entire family was put in the police station and there was absolutely no concept of a due process now there are two ways of looking at it that regardless of caste this would have happened anyway because that is the lawless nature of police stations in most places or is there an element of caste identity that has played a role in this particular situation i am unable to think other no i think both sides whether you are defending caste or whether you are vilifying it i think both sides are equally responsible uh, for the for for this um, treatment of caste in the sense of presentism where you analyze something 
Understood. in the past from today's value systems. Right. Even when we talk about rigidity, right. uh, the whole concept of changing your occupation was alien before the industrial revolution. Right. So when so in in that sense, caste was a social security net because you inherited um, the profession that your father uh, was carrying forward. So in that sense, while you were uh, growing up as part of your education, you also eased eased into your occupation. So that is something that is missing now, and that is also missing because the society has so drastically changed. So both sides, when they, so the example that you give about the police station. Now, the way that police or any other law enforcement agencies, one, you yourself said that, you know, generally they are, uh, they are a little careless with how uh, they deal with people. But I suspect that there is an element of casteism there. And that happens because even, uh, even every, everyone today is afflicted with the same disease, I suppose. Then what is the way forward? Because let's proceed with the assumption that caste as a construct is not going to leave us anytime in the near future. Then how do you deal with it? Because what I see increasingly is retrospective justifications of what it could be or what its original basis could have been. I think what people are concerned about is one. And I, I say this from people from all sorts of ideological persuasions. If I happen to be someone who's interested in the concept of Indic unity, unity within the Indic fold, and if caste presents a barrier to it, especially if it rears its head every once in five years, whenever there's an assembly election or a general election, and it becomes a relevant part of the calculus, how do you deal with that particular thing? I'm unable to understand. No, I think that the whole uh, business of bringing in caste into the electoral politics is counterproductive. Because what you're trying to do is that you're trying to pit one caste against the other. That is the nature of how it works, right? right? When you offer reservations, uh, even though if you even if you have good intentions, ultimately what you're doing is that you're creating victims somewhere else, right? So uh, just by virtue of pitting one group against the other, you're uh, you're deepening those fault lines. Uh, there is place for uh, for research and scholarship into this and for very honest uh, discussions about it. Unless that happens, uh, you will not understand what caste was in the first place and you will not understand where in the trajectory of the civilization's journey, right. where you can locate the current casteism. My understanding is every system, whenever it is put in place, to put it in legal parlance, has some semblance of checks and balances. I'm not sure if sufficient research has gone into it or I have failed to look into it or it is my own ignorance into what were the safeguards that were inbuilt in this particular structure to prevent its ossification. That I don't know if enough research has been done into this particular issue. It's, it's a very complex task. I think that there is whoever is, uh, you know, whoever has, um, has roots in research and, you know, whoever funds research in India, uh, first of all, there's not enough people doing that. Right. But uh, whichever think tanks we have, I think a lot of emphasis needs to be placed on this topic. Right. And enough research needs to be done because ultimately you will never come to a complete 100% conclusive right. picture of the past. Right. But you will at least have enough nuance in the discourse, which is completely missing now. Right. So I think the question of caste itself, and that brings me to the question of religion only. Right. Uh, in in Indian democracy, 
religion is a taboo word right but ironically religion is the most played card in some sense you know minority appeasement and uh, before every elections political parties remember religious issues ram mandir aa jata hai you know stuff like that right so uh, even though you are saying that religion is a no no in public discourse but ultimately when it comes to elections you bring it back because right. you've swept it under the rug and now you are forced to acknowledge its presence because people identify with right. it i think that partly stems from the elitism of the english minded elites because uh, what is surprising is that their notions of what must be somebody's approach to religion and the so called private or personal nature of religion is something that is being imposed on uh, the rest of the society which i don't think they should have i'll be blunt enough to say that i was ex- i was extremely disappointed and shocked with the response of the honorable chief justice of the supreme court when a petition was made asking for the right to pray at ram janmabhoomi and the response was you will not let this country be in peace and why are you provoking or poking a sleeping lion i am not sure what to make of those observations at all perhaps they have they they were just observations made in the heat of the moment because the supreme court is an extremely difficult forum to handle regardless of who is uh, adorning that particular chair but particularly knowing how sensitive this particular issue is and that there has been an entire movement forget the politicization of the movement that doesn't matter there are genuine sentiments behind it there are lakhs and lakhs of people millions and millions of people who believe that a ram mandir must be built what does that statement mean to those people what does it say of the things to come i really don't know somebody is asserting his or her right to pray at a particular place a supreme court which was more than happy to entertain a petition uh, filed by people who did not express or profess any faith in the deity and sought entry into that particular place is effectively saying that someone who believes in it and wants to worship at that particular place is troubling the court i'm not really sure what to make of it that statement because a lot of questions were asked of me thinking that because i practice in that particular forum then i must know something about it i had no answers to explain or justify what was said there's a decent chance that the media may have actually misreported it or it was taken out of context you can never be sure with the media's presentation these days but assuming that that was not the case and what was reported was indeed accurate then what does one make of it so that tells me that uh, it is not religion that is taboo discussions by some religions perhaps is a taboo and to them are reserved the pontifications of secularism and the the truism that religion must be always practiced in privacy or within the four corners of your home but for everybody else a public expression is perfectly fine if a group decides to obstruct uh, traffic and chooses to perform its prayers in public uh, during the rush hour in broad daylight on a weekday then that is not seen as poking a sleeping lion that is not seen as uh, not letting the country be in peace therefore there are double standards whether we like it or not there seem to be double standards and that is what irks people unfortunately what is going to happen is that if if institutions which are supposed to protect everyone's rights equally uh end up coming across even if that's not the case coming across as as uh treating some sentiments as more equal than others then i don't know what it would do to the respect for that particular forum in the eyes of the common people that's a very pertinent point um 
and this brings me to another interesting aspect of democracy which is uh, its representative nature so it's always said that democracy is for the people of the people by the people uh, but that's just uh, you know that's just happy talk i think uh, it is fair to say that more or less we are still ruled by elites right, right. who we choose right but then the decisions ultimately that are taken are they really decisions for or on behalf of the people if you look at the issue of ram janmabhoomi itself uh, there were millions of people in the street i remember i was a kid back then when the rath yatra first happened and the the groundswell was something you need to see to believe right, right. so in spite of that in 30 years we haven't been able to build that temple right or at least have some sort of a sane uh, discussion about it Correct. that points to the fact that there is something which is not letting the will of the people be expressed in uh, in the polity right so what do you think we should do about it i mean are there any <coughs> while i understand that you are from a legal background but do you have any thoughts on what structural changes could be done or i think uh, the status quo on this particular front requires a disruptive intervention and i i'm not using the word disruptive in a pejorative sense or in a negative sense or in a confrontational sense what is being treated as taboo must be discussed as openly as possible without mincing words without necessarily being aggressive but presenting one's position in a balanced and measured fashion but without necessarily succumbing to any sense of political correctness mm. i believe that there must be a temple that must be built in that particular place notwithstanding what may have happened on the 6th of december 1992 for which perhaps an apology is owed only because the rule of law was violated in that particular sense i would have been absolutely happy and thrilled if the structure was brought down under the orders of a court which is what would have happened if ultimately the people who want the mandir to be built had emerged victorious in the supreme court or hopefully will emerge victorious in the supreme court now that particular incident is constantly used to undermine the legitimate aspirations of people who want a temple to be built there which i don't see how you can actually use one for the other the aspiration for the construction of a temple is as valid as the aspiration of the construction of a mosque of the other side right it is ultimately for the law to decide which of these aspirations deserve to be treated or protected by law at the end of the day as far as that particular disputed area is concerned okay but pending that to say that because of this particular incident the entire aspiration of a, of a whole community must be thrown into the dustbin would be unacceptable now what has happened is that particular incident has also handed to certain vested interests the argument of majoritarian oppression or hindu majoritarianism that i think is problematic if it is a question of hindu majoritarianism i think at least 200 temples were destroyed in kashmir hindu majoritarianism did not react to it at all that is a very conservative estimate perhaps there were more there are several places if one were to visit in fact i recently read the article written by neha shivastava on the kashi vishwanath temple and the approach road to that particular place or the area surrounding that particular temple and one can feel the pain in her soul when she steps into the particular place which i think is what people feel when they visit even the mathura temple so these are real problems we seem to be perfectly comfortable with people weeping uh, over what happened in paris fine i think that is a loss for humanity it is global heritage human heritage at the end of the day right
but then why don't we treat our own structures of heritage and our own places of worship as global heritage and protect in that particular sense. You don't need to be a Hindu or a member of an Indic community to understand what is right and what is wrong and to take a position on that. But I think, I don't think positions are taken on what is right and what is wrong. It's political correctness, peer acceptance, pressure, acceptability, social acceptance, multiple considerations. So before we, um, before I have, um, I have a, uh, I have an interesting question for you. But before that, I would just like you to make your views on UCC, Uniform Civil Code, a little more explicit. We've had this discussion before, right. but uh, for the for the audience. I'm not sure uh, what is exactly the end result of a Uniform Civil Code has been understood very clearly. Now, there are a lot of people who have perhaps bought into the particular idea merely because it came from a camp which was the anti-Congress camp or the non-Congress camp. But does it necessarily bode well for Indic communities in the, la in, in the long run is something that I'm not sure about. Because uh, I think this community has still not asked certain questions of the Nehruvian dispensation which continues till date in one form or the other uh, as to what it did with Hindu traditions through the Hindu code which was brought in the 1950s. I think we should first look at protecting our traditions before insisting on certain de minimis thresholds being observed across the board. Now, unfortunately or fortunately, what happens when it comes to civil rights or personal laws is that the line that actually separates the secular or the civil from the religious is very, very thin. And that is a fact. So you never know where you might end up encroaching upon somebody's cherished beliefs or received worldview for centuries or generations together or even millennia for that particular matter in our case in the name of harmonizing certain structures. What, do we really need a harmonized structure to maintain national, let's say a national identity or a sense of social integration is a question that we must ask. Because if that were to be the assumption, then applying that to the Hindu fold or the Indic fold itself may be problematic because there is such diversity that it's difficult to impose any kind of de minimis identity there. So to my mind, the uniform civil code is perhaps, and I've said so before, it may offend a lot of people, is a loser's argument that somebody who's lost his dignity is asking for a repeat of the same experience with other communities. I don't think that should be our purview or our outlook. The idea must be to protect your space first, as opposed to asking for the loss of everybody's space and identity. That's where I come from. So I largely agree with that position. But uh, here's a conundrum that I would like you to solve for me, which is uh, if we go by UCC, if we, if we reject the idea of UCC, then that means that uh, every community has its own rules to play by, right? They live in a certain way and we respect that tradition and their culture and we let it be. Uh, but let's take the case of polygamy. Right? So, we know that uh, Hindus are not allowed to marry more than once, while Muslims are. It is also a fact that Muslims have a much higher total fertility ratio than Hindus as a community. So, while there is no direct causation, there is certainly a correlation between the practice of polygamy and between having more kids. And it was, uh, you brought it up that Overpopulation is a serious concern and I agree. So what if the government were to uh, to clamp down or, or 
clamp down is too hard a word. Uh, let's say to restrict this idea of polygamy and to make the whole Indian society uh, monogamous. How would they do it if there is no civil uniform civil code? I remember watching a recent interview or a discussion uh, of Jordan Peterson in, a, in an academic campus recently. And uh, in that interview, the same question is asked of Jordan Peterson about the relative TFRs of the Muslim population and the non-Muslim population, I think in America. This was a question that was put. The reason why I'm bringing that up is for a different reason, which is, it is typically assumed in India that a higher fertility rate is a direct consequence of poor education, poverty levels, lack of awareness, lack of belief in contraception, either for religious reasons or let's say simply because it stems from ignorance. But perhaps that cannot be said of the Muslim community that lives in the West, especially in the US, which is to say that of course perhaps they may lag behind the rest of the American society when it comes to certain matrices or sorry metrics or indices. But they are certainly perhaps better off compared to Muslims living in, in India. And yet there is a issue of TFR there. That perhaps tells you that uh, there could be multiple motivations at play. We don't know what exactly that could be. It would be an entirely speculative exercise. But the lack of understanding that such overpopulation has a direct impact on nature, on access to resources, which could lead to strife, is something that needs to be impressed upon the people who, who need that particular education, so to speak, whoever it may be. Because there could be certain communities within the Indic fold who have more TFR than the rest of the community. That could always happen. Mm. But the point is, you don't need to address the issue of polygamy from the standpoint of a uniform civil code. You can address it simply from the standpoint of nature, population. And that would be a much more legitimate way of going about it and perhaps a less communal way of going about it for the simple reason that at the end of the day, what is the point of holding on to religion if ultimately you are hurtling towards destruction of the planet? That doesn't make sense at all. Okay. And that is the belief, that is the Indic belief, that you are supposed to look out for the society first, you're supposed to look out for nature first. That is the duty-based discourse that we follow. So India can draw from its Indic jurisprudence with respect to respect for nature, responsible behavior and responsible breeding, so to speak, if I were to use that particular phrase, and then approach the question of polygamy through that lens, as opposed to using uniform civil code. Now, population in general, I think needs to be addressed across the board. But the fear is that if there is a targeted intent to invert demographics, then there is always a mutually destructive competitive race, which is going on, which is I need to outbreed for me to be able to survive. Otherwise, the demographics will come back to haunt me. And I think the favorite examples on that particular front would be what's happening in Assam or what has happened in Kashmir and what is going on in Kerala. So if you see this entire thing, perhaps from a 30,000 feet uh, perspective, identity politics plays a role even when it comes to the issue of overpopulation. The fear of being drowned out and outnumbered and then systematically cleansed is perhaps one of the reasons for this competitive breeding that is going on. Therefore, it becomes even more imperative for us to have our civilizational lens absolutely clear in order to address each of these aspects, be it illegal immigration, 
national security, population, access to resources, access to sensitive resources, demographic balance in sensitive places, these all ultimately boil down to the one single issue of identity. Somebody, I mean, somebody could actually accuse me of actually oversimplifying this entire thing, saying that you're obsessed with identity, therefore you see everything from the point of view of identity. But prove me wrong and tell me that identity has absolutely no role to play in any of these considerations. I'm happy to stand corrected. But it, it does play a role. Let somebody tell me that there is no motivation whatsoever which is identity based when it comes to the aspect of breeding or demographics or overpopulation. I'll completely stand corrected. I'll take back my words. But enough evidence is staring us in our faces when it comes to these things that proves this point correct. So I think it is difficult for a government to approach politics separately, population separately, culture separately and civilization separately. It needs to have a certain narrative and all other verticals must be addressed within that particular narrative to ensure that the narrative is consistent on all fronts or at least there is some sem semblance of a handshake between different parts of the machine. That is why I believe that unless and until there is a narrative or a vision which informs the policy at a, at a big picture level, there will always be the problem of putting more emphasis on one aspect than the other and delegating other aspects to the margins. That's my position. So when you talk about narrative, I think, um, I think it is obvious that we'll also have to talk about education, which was one of the points you mentioned at the beginning. Uh, it is often said that education is necessary for a healthy democracy. Uh, which I don't entirely subscribe to uh, because it depends on the kind of education that you have. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Indic Collective and its vision for education. What do you think India's future uh, would be like if, if we continue down the same path? And what would your recommendations be, broadly speaking, in terms of how we go about reforming education? I'll answer this question from two recent experiences that I've had and I'm drawing from that even more. I was uh, reading and I continue to read this fantastic book uh, called Sanskriti Ke Charadhyay and I'm still in the process of reading it because I love that Hindi at the same time the clarity of thought is amazing written by Ram Dhari Singh Dinkar who was hailed as a nationalist poet. Now if you read his book it is very clear that he accepts the Aryan invasion theory, but he doesn't see that as invasion. He sees that more as an Aryan immigration theory. He abhors the use of the word invasion completely when it comes to this particular concept. He deals with Max Mueller. He goes through a lot of Indologists who were present at the same time in the 1800s and 1900s, such as Max Mueller and Indians. And he comes to the conclusion that perhaps the Indian civilization has gone through four waves of immigration which has effectively resulted in what we know as Bharatiya Sanskriti today. That is his assumption. And he does not see a problem or any conflict at all in the successive waves of immigration. He sees this as a process of assimilation ultimately, where ultimately even the Vedas, the local traditions, assuming that there was an immigration, all of these fuse to give rise to a certain identity. He says that the major breaks in that particular process of assimilation started with the Arab invasion and then with the entry of the British and along with them the missionaries where they refused to assimilate and they chose either to impose or to wipe out was effectively their approach. Now 
what he says in his introductory chapters is that the responsibility of integrating the society falls on education. That is his crystal clear recommendation and his reasons for placing such emphasis on education. Where he says a cultural education is perhaps even more important than utilitarian education. That is something that his central message screams loud from that particular book. And that, is, that has been, I think, my belief and belief of a lot of people who have always in a, said that there must be sufficient efforts invested in revising school curricula, history curricula, because the product of that particular process was visible uh, in my recent interaction at Ashoka University. The students were really civil, they were brilliant, they were fairly well informed when it comes to their first principles of logic and all that. But logic cannot overcome a set perception or a conditioning that has happened over a period of 15-20 years. It, and logic has to repeatedly hammer away and chip away at that particular conditioning because perception or emotion is intuitive and it is much more human, let's say. Therefore, people hold on to it. And logic takes a lot of time to actually uh, make, an make an impact or make a dent. Unless and until there is a polarizing experience which effectively changes your perspective or you've been at the midst of a certain incident which tells you, oh, I need to revisit my preconceived notions. Now, there I heard this logic, I don't know if to, whether to call it logic or not, that it is okay for communities to punch up and not okay to, for communities to punch down, which is to say that minorities can get away with whatever statements that they wish to make against the majorities, but the majority cannot do that because the minority always lives in a perpetual state of fear. The default assumption that was so problematic and for a generation that worships logic, reason and all that, they said that facts or history, not they, some, some of them basically held the view that facts and logic must take a backseat if it is a question of hurting somebody's sentiments, especially minority sentiments. That was amazing. I mean, it, it tells you the extent of the problem. And that problem will show itself up beyond campuses in office spaces, in personal decisions, in professional decisions, in societal decisions, everywhere it is going to reflect itself and manifest itself. So I think education can be a double-edged sword. At this point of time, it is eating into the vitals of the society by contributing to a fissiparous tendency and it is perhaps causing irreparable damage according to me. So education is the only solution and investment in proper education in history, in humanities, is what we need at this point of time. So, uh, I think that is where I would put my finger on as far as the current dispensation's central failings. I have no doubts and I have no qualms in making the statement that I will vote for Mr. Modi again. And I've said so openly in Ashoka University. And contrary to popular perception, they were very civil about receiving that particular point of view. I had no problems at all. But, should he come back to power, which I hope he does, he must focus on education because this is an investment in posterity. This is an investment in the civilization. And it will ultimately prepare those minds which will protect this land and its interests as opposed to working against them. Therefore, to address the university issue is problematic because that is addressing the issue after the horses have bolted from the stables. But at the school level, and hopefully there is more emphasis from the family and the community itself to take an interest in what is it that their child is learning in schools and what kind of schools, what is being taught. 
If somebody starts with the assumption that the moment you mention Diwali, there must be an anti-cracker campaign and there is nothing else that is positive that is discussed about the festival, then there is a problem. There is a negative association of the festival immediately. These things happen. I love environment. I started off with that. But at the same time, what is the impact of such a campaign on a young, impressionable mind? When they make it cool and when they say, when you do this, you're intellectual, you're sophisticated, you're environment friendly. I think it starts with education. Education is the key. And hopefully this government will take the help of better informed minds, people who have actually spent years and decades investing in that particular field, take their inputs and recraft the syllabus to bring the society together and to prepare it and to give it the guts to face its past because that is most important. I think some sections are pushed to the wall in staring at their past and learning from those mistakes and others are completely exempt from that kind of scrutiny. That shouldn't happen. There I would expect equality. So I, I wish that we could go on and on and discuss but I think I'll let you catch a flight. Um, but on this very positive note, uh, I share the sentiment that should Mr. Modi come back to power, and I hope he does, like you, uh, the next term we'll see some major reforms in the education sector and uh, more, uh, more attention to the things that need that attention. Uh, for example, when I would expect Mr. Modi, when he speaks on monkey bath, to address some of these problems at least uh, that we've touched upon here. Thank you, Jay Saidipak, for being here. Thank you for here. the opportunity. And uh, I hope that you will come back soon and we will continue this discussion. Yes. Thank you.